All right, hey, thrilled that you are here today. Um, thank you so much for being here. One of the things I make clear is that um, I really don't believe that it's an accident that you're here. I really think that scripture is clear that the reason you're here is because God has drawn you into this place. And so uh, you may not have had a particularly uh, clear reason for being here this morning, but I think that God probably has. And so again, um, the, the, the message I think for each of us this morning is that we're here because God has drawn us to this place. So we are in week two of a series on the book of Haggai, okay? Last week, 60% of you in this room didn't even know the book of Haggai existed, okay? Right? You thought that was a joke. You didn't know about it anyway. But, but it really is. It's a minor prophet from the Old Testament there toward the end. And uh, just to sort of give you a little bit of a background story on the book of Haggai, it's this. So in about 610 B.C., um, Babylon conquered Jerusalem, conquered Israel, Right? And so what Babylon did is uh, they put fish hooks in people's mouths, this is true, and they dragged them away and they exiled them into all these different parts of, uh, of the Babylonian kingdom in order to sort of break the will of all these people they had conquered. And, and so the people of Israel were in exile for 70 years. Well, about 70 years later, Persia defeated Babylon and it was under the Persian rule that Ezra was allowed to go back to Jerusalem and to begin rebuilding the temple, Okay. And so the Persians took over. They sent Ezra and some other folks back to rebuild the temple. 18 or 16 years later, I can't remember which one, 16 years later, I think, um, then Darius succeeded his father, uh, the Persian king, and Darius said, all right, all of the exiles, right? So all the Jewish exiles from all over the kingdom can go back home now. And so here, after 70 years, all of these people are enabled to go back home. What's interesting is that Haggai goes with that second wave of people. And so for 18 years, Ezra's been back, and they're supposed to be building, rebuilding the temple. But when Haggai shows up with the second wave of people, he looks and he sees that hardly anything has been done on the temple. The reason why is because the Samaritans and some surrounding people around Jerusalem who weren't exiled uh, were threatening the lives of the Jews who had returned to rebuild the temple. And so what happened was is the Jews basically sort of turtled up and said, all right, we're not going to worry about the temple just yet. We're going to just build our own homes and build our own lives until we think the time is right. And as a result, they begin to experience distance from God. They begin to experience unfulfillment and a lack of satisfaction in all that they do. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15 of Haggai, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And again, this is sort of continuing the same theme of dissatisfaction, but we'll jump in on verse 13. It says this, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came out and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you 
when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you very much that uh, in this book um, we have what seems to be um, a diagnosis for our own depression, for our own melancholy, our own sadness and and emptiness and dissatisfaction with life. Um, Father, I thank you that the message um, from 2,600 years ago is the same message today, and that is that uh, this infinite hole within our hearts uh, can only be filled with someone or something who is infinite. And so, Father, we ask that this morning uh, that you would enter into us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, and uh, that we would be satisfied in knowing you and walking with you. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. How many of you like jokes? Just raise your hand very quickly, right? Everybody likes jokes. I'm a terrible joke teller, right? So I joke around a lot, but I'm not a good joke teller. But somebody told me this joke recently, so I'm going to break it out on you guys. All right, here it is. It's this, okay? It's a, an atheist, a vegetarian, and a crossfitter walk into a bar. Have you heard this before? And they, then the, the person says, well, do you, know, you want to know how I knew that that's what they were? And the answer is, because they all told me in the first minute. You get it? That's right. Do you know a vegetarian? They tell you pretty quickly. Or a CrossFitter, whatever. The truth is, I've been two of the three of those. And the one of them is not an atheist, okay? I currently do CrossFit. Thank you, Jeff Holloway, wherever you are. And uh, I was a vegetarian for three and a half years. All right, some of you don't know that before. It's kind of kooky. I don't tell people that stuff frequently. But um, just to put it in context, it had nothing to do with philosophical stuff at all. Um, it simply had to do with me trying to be healthy and um, not be a slob. Anyway, so I did a New Year's resolution. I started doing it my junior year in high school. And so I would just pick one thing. Like, I think my junior year, I said, I'm not going to drink any carbonated beverages for the year, which for a 17-year-old who was addicted to Coke, that was a big deal. And so I went a whole year without drinking anything, uh, but, you know, I, without drinking any carbonated beverages. And then, you know, year in, year out, I did other uh, New Year's resolutions until one year, again, I don't now five, six years ago, I thought, you know what, I wonder if I could be a vegetarian for a year. And so on a whim, I did it, and I did it for the first year, and I kind of was like, wow, that was easy, no big deal. And not only that, but I had my blood work done, and uh, I had had borderline high cholesterol, but that's probably genetic or something. And, uh, and when I went to get my blood work done, six or eight weeks after starting this vegetarian diet... Um, when the lady did my blood work, she was like, your blood work is fantastic. I was like, wow, I've never had fantastic blood work before. Anyway, and so I kept it up. Well, what was interesting is after about two years, I started to just have like no energy, just zero energy. And anytime I did something physical, I would just be drained and I would drag. And I kind of got to the point where I was forgetful. And sometimes I was depressed and I was kind of you know, covered with this melancholy. And so I started doing some research on what in the world might be going on with me. And I went and had some blood work done. And sure enough, I had low B12, right? And so the reason you get low B12 is when you're a vegetarian and you don't have enough animal products coming into you, 
then you can get low B12, and the, the symptoms of low B12 are, you know, depression and lack of energy and all this other stuff. And what's funny is I tried all these different fixes to try to make it right and to heal myself, and nothing I could do could raise my energy levels up. Eventually, I simply had to eat two Frankfurters um, when we were on vacation one summer. It was awesome. Anyway, so I started eating meat, and literally within five days, I started to feel better than I'd felt in years, right? So what was happening was I was experiencing these symptoms of melancholy and lack of energy and depression, and uh, what was the problem was is I needed something from outside of myself to fill me up and give me energy, and it just so happened that it was found in hot dogs and fish and steak. Thank goodness. I feel better, much better, a year and a half later. Anyway, so here's the point. The point is this, is that uh, these Israelites, 2,600 years ago, are experiencing symptoms, Right? And what we talked about last week is the symptoms they're feeling or experiencing are this sort of great existential unfulfillment, dissatisfaction, this emptiness, this melancholy, this deep dissatisfaction with life. And what's interesting is they were experiencing, experiencing all these things even though they were doing all of the right things. And they still were depressed. They still were down. They still felt unfulfilled. And if you remember, Haggai, again, is preaching to these people who had been in exile for 70 years years, and then had returned home. Let me just ask you for a minute. What do you think that those people were dreaming about for 70 years? They were dreaming about home, right? They were basically saying, you know, if only we could get back to Jerusalem, everything would be great. You know, if only we could get back to our, you know, family and friends that weren't exiled, then we'd be happy, then we'd be fulfilled. If only we could go back and sort of, you know, rebuild the temple. If we could only go back and experience all those things from home, well, then we'd be happy, then we'd be satisfied But guess what? After 70 years, they went back, and even though they had the very thing they'd been dreaming of, they were still deeply dissatisfied. They were still unfulfilled. Does that make sense? Some of us have done exactly the same thing that the Israelites did, right? Some of us basically said, you know what? If only I can get into that college, then I'll be fulfilled. And you get into the college, and you're not fulfilled. You're still dissatisfied. And you think, well, if only I can get into my major then I'll be satisfied, but you're not. You're still dissatisfied. And some of you then thought, well, if I can just get the job, right? And so you get the job, and you think, I'll be happy if I get the job, but you're still empty. You're still dissatisfied. And so then you think, well, maybe what I need to do is I need to get a husband, or maybe I need to get a wife, and then if I have that significant other, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be filled up, right? Then I'll be fulfilled. And you get the spouse, and you're still dissatisfied. Steve mentioned it this morning, and that's not a criticism of Brenda, It's just the human condition, right? And so then you think, well, the spouse didn't do it, and so I'm going to have kids. Surely kids will make me fulfilled and happy. You get children, and then, boy, are you really not fulfilled or satisfied. (laughs) Just kidding. I love my children. Anyway. And then you think, well, you know what? If I can just make it to retirement, then we can retire in the mountains, and that's when I'll finally be fulfilled. I'll finally be happy, right? And so you retire in the mountains only to discover that you're still not happy, so you trade it in and you go to the beach because you think maybe I'll be happy if I go to the beach and retire there, and you're still empty, you're still unsatisfied, right? Some of you, this ought to be echoing with some of you guys, right? And if it's not echoing with you, it's probably because you're too young still, right? There's still a lot of life in front of you. C.S. Lewis basically said this. He said, and in some of his writings, he basically said, it has evaded us, and he uses it in capital letters. It's evaded us. Right? Whatever that, that thing is has evaded us, and so we're still 
dissatisfied. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, there's a man named Tim Keller. Some of you guys know who he is already, but for the sake of this morning, let me just say that he's a thinker who lives in Manhattan. He critiques uh, society, right? He thinks philosophically. He also happens to be a pastor. But Keller basically says this. He says, there's seven different approaches that we have to our dissatisfaction. Seven different approaches that we have to our dissatisfaction. Let me, let me put those up on the screen really quickly. And actually, let me get you to pay attention because my guess is, and I would bet money, that probably each of us fits into one of these categories. So how do we respond when we sort of get that thing we think is going to satisfy, but, but then it doesn't? And the first thing he says is, he said a lot of times we respond with what's called the youth, youthful response. What that means is, when you're still 15, you can look forward and you go, well, when I finally get the truck, I'll be happy, right? Or when I get the PlayStation. Or when I get the this, the girlfriend or the boyfriend. It's still out there somewhere. And so, yeah, I'm dissatisfied right now, but, but I know that one day I'll get it. And so that's the youthful response to feeling dissatisfaction. It's out there somewhere, right? The second approach that we see that people use to deal with this dissatisfaction, this disillusionment, is what he calls the angry response. And what he basically says is, when people begin to feel disillusioned, one of the things that people do, one approach that they have to their dissatisfaction is they blame the barriers, right? They blame the barriers to their happiness. And so somebody might say, you know what? Man, I, my husband, if, if only I hadn't married him, then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be fulfilled, right? Or maybe you look at your wife and you say, man, if I'd simply married somebody else, I'd be happy, right? I'd be satisfied. You blame your spouse. Maybe you blame society, right? You blame unjust systems in society. And you say, man, if only there weren't X, Y, or Z in society, then I'd be satisfied. I'd be happy. Everything would be fine if it weren't for my parents. Blame, blame, blame. It's what you do with that dissatisfaction. The driven strategy is the third thing he talks about. What he basically says is um, some people respond to their dissatisfaction by saying, all right, this spouse didn't do it for me, so obviously I need to get a better spouse, so I'm trading spouse A for spouse B, right? And that's a way they, they, they're sort of driven to be fulfilled. Or, or maybe they say, you know, house A didn't do it for me, and so I'll get another house, a better house with more bathrooms and, you know, more living space and more land, and then I'll be satisfied or a better career or a better place to live, right? But it's always this idea of trading up. So I'm going to deal with my dissatisfaction and that emptiness, that melancholy within me with basically saying, I'm going to get more, I'm going to get more, I'm going to get more. Some people deal with the dissatisfaction through despair. They simply kind of go, I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to get it. So I'm giving up. And maybe they even blame themselves, right? These are, these are people that commit suicide. They, they give up, right? Three more ways in which people deal with this dissatisfaction. The next one is the altruistic response. This would be somebody who, you know, put their years in making money, working in the business world. They earn lots of money, and they basically said, I'm dissatisfied, you know? You see movies like this all the time, by the way, and people wake up, and they're dissatisfied. They're not happy. They're empty, and they say, I've got to, I've clearly sort of followed the wrong path. I need to go to the other end of the spectrum, do a 180, and they jump into a purely altruistic life, and guess what? They're still empty, right? And not only are they still empty, but a lot of times, then they end up blaming the very people they're trying to help. They end up despising them. They end up bitter. The next way that Keller talks about is the grown-up response. Again, what he says is some people, when they sort of are faced with their dissatisfaction, their lack of fulfillment, what they do is they kind of go, hey, you know what? I have grown up. I've stopped believing in uh, unicorns, right? And uh, I don't chase rainbows anymore. I I've got to simply grow up. 
and I got to quit worrying about anybody else. I got to live for myself, right? There's no such thing as happiness. There's no such thing as fulfillment. So I'm just going to get while the getting's good, and I'm going to live for me. Now, the problem is this, is that when you live that way, you become less human, right? You become harder. You become bitter, right? You become selfish, right? And so you not only become less human yourself, but you end up destroying the people that you love. The last response that we see that people use to cope with this lack of fulfillment is the Stoic response. Of course, Stoicism is this philosophical idea that basically says the reason you're, you're unhappy is because you want stuff. You have desires. And so if you can simply get rid of your desires, well, then you'll be, you'll be better off, right? And again, like the one before, the grown-up response, what ends up happening when you detach is that you don't love anything, you don't love anyone, and again, you actually become less human, right? Okay, so let me just let those sink in for a minute. And the reason I think they need to sink in is because I would bet money, or apples, if that were whatever's legal or illegal, I would bet money that each of us fits into one of those categories, and probably at many times, we can fit into a few different of those categories. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that deep down inside us lies that dissatisfaction and that melancholy, and we've been looking around at all these things that God has created to fill up that void within us, and we've tried this, and we've tried that, and we're still existentially empty, dissatisfied, and unfulfilled, right? That's actually very much the point of this book of Haggai, right? That's what Haggai is, is talking to these people. That's why God has sent Haggai to them. He's basically saying, look, you guys have the stuff. You're back from exile. You've got great homes. He says you've got paneled homes, right? You're, you're back home. You've got friends and family. You've got relatives, but you're still empty. Why is that something is missing, right? So guess if you could remember, over the last few weeks, we've been using this paradigm to unpack Scripture. And the paradigm we've been using is we've been starting off using the Heidelberg Catechism, which begins this section by saying, what's my sin and misery? Right? What is my sin and misery? Well, the sin and misery of the Israelites and us is our sin and misery is that we, apart from God, are empty and we're unfulfilled. Now, the second section of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. All right, well, so... So what grace is offered to me? What's my hope is the next section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the answer is this. In this passage anyway, what God does, the hope, the grace that he gives them is three things. He gives them a vision of his purpose. Steve mentioned that this morning. He gives them a vision of his power and he gives them a reminder and a vision of his presence. His purpose, his power, his presence. I never use alliteration because I think it's cheesy, but it just really fit well here. So please forgive me, but I'm gonna unpack these really quickly. First, God reminds the Israelites and us of his purpose. Listen to verses 6 through 9 of Haggai chapter 2. It says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the measures, the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you read that about, you know, the gold and the silver and the nations and all this kind of stuff, and it sounds like the spoils of war. That's what kind of sounds like what it's talking about, right? And so all of a sudden, we get a little uncomfortable. That's not what it's talking about. The reason that the nations are bringing gold and silver into the house of the Lord is to worship, right? It's to glorify God. Part of what God is doing through Haggai to the children of Israel that have returned 
is he's basically giving them a glimpse of a purpose that is bigger than their little lives, right? And see, that's the problem, is that each of us are seeking our happiness in our, in our very finite and immediate surroundings. If I can just get that phone, if I can just have that, if I can just do this, then I'll be happy. All those things, by the way, are good things, right? Nowhere does God say you shouldn't desire or pursue those things. But what God is saying is, is that in order for you to be fulfilled, you have to understand that your little purpose has to be woven into the greater purpose of God's redemption and God's redemptive story. Does that make sense? That's, that's the moment at which you begin to achieve real happiness is when your little story enters into the big story of God being glorified, of people walking with him as they were created to do in the Garden of Eden. Quick illustration. There's a man named David Livingston. Some of you guys have heard the quote, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Well, uh, Dr. Livingston was a Scottish missionary to Africa. I'm going to read you a little section um, of, a, of a biography about him. The, uh, the story begins with him as a medical student listening to a man named uh, Moffat talking about the people in Africa. So let me just read this section of, of the biography of David Livingston. Many a morning have I stood on the porch of my house and looking northward have seen the smoke arise from the villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. I've seen at different times the smoke of a thousand villages, villages whose people are without Christ, without God, and without hope in the world. The smoke of a thousand villages, the smoke of a thousand villages. Thus spoke the South African pioneer, Robert Moffat. The meeting closed, and out of the door of the hall went a young man, a young medical student, David Livingston. But with him went the words of Moffat, the smoke of a thousand villages, whose people have never heard the smoke of a thousand villages." He could not sleep that night, that is Livingston. The lure of Africa had caught him, the lure of a work worth doing, the biggest work that a young man who strives to follow Christ can attempt, the smoke of a thousand villages. Moffat's words sang on in his ears. He left England and arrived unheralded in Africa. He who had few gifts but willpower to make his own future and the success of his life. How little did the committee of the London Missionary Society realize when they accepted this young man as a missionary, that after 43 years he would be buried in Westminster Abbey, and that his tomb in the Abbey would be visited by more people from the ends of the earth than any other tomb in that mausoleum of the mighty, right? And so part of what happened to this um, man who was on his way to become a doctor was all of a sudden his smaller story, his smaller purpose was woven into God's greater purpose of seeing people come into a relationship with God. That's, again, part of the beginning of satisfaction is the weaving of those two things. And so some of you in the room this morning are sitting back there, and you're definitely sort of on board with your dissatisfaction, right? We're postmoderns. Maybe we're post-posts, and so admitting dissatisfaction is kind of okay to do that. But part of what is happening here is that we're being given a vision for a purpose that's greater than our little lives. It's being woven into God's greater purpose, into his greater story. And by the way, that doesn't at all mean that you need to be a missionary. It doesn't at all mean that you need to be a pastor. It definitely doesn't mean that you need to be a church planter, right? What it means is is that whatever you do, right, whether you're cooking an omelet, so says Brother Lawrence, or whether you're a mom taking care of kids, or whether you're a husband going off to work, it's understanding that your purpose and your little story is woven into the bigger story of God, that story of redemption. And as we begin to see God's purpose 
then all of a sudden our satisfaction begins to grow as we see our stories woven into the story of God's redemption. The Israelites needed to be reminded of that, but so do we, right? God gives them a reminder of his purpose. He also gives them a reminder of his power. Listen to verse 14 of chapter 1 and uh, verse 6 of chapter 2. It says this, and again, God, this is the God reminding them of his power. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and in the dry land. What God is doing is he's basically saying, you don't have to do it in your strength. In fact, you can't do it in your strength. It has to be through my power. It says that he stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. It says that he stirred up the spirit of Joshua. It says that he stirred up the spirit of the remnant of the people. And so here in Haggai, we see God addressing the sin of the Israelites. He basically says, look, you're seeking your comfort and your security and your identity in your own homes and your own lives instead of in me. And we see God graciously giving the people a glimpse of his purpose, right? To draw people from every part of the earth into a relationship with him. And it would be logical for them to see that big purpose and go, well, that's impossible. Like, we can't see that happen. We can't see all those people come in to worship you, right? It would be logical for them to feel like it was too much, like it was beyond them or beyond their ability. It would be logical for them and for us to think, I can't do that, right? And what God says is, you're right. I have to do it, right? I'm going to give you a glimpse of my power. It's only through me that you can do anything. So um, one of my greatest embarrassment and failures in life was the choice of a car when I was in a sophomore in high school, okay? I promise I'm going somewhere with this. So I had saved up about $3,000. I lifeguarded my, the summer after my eighth grade year, which was illegal. I lifeguarded the summer after my ninth grade year. Then I lifeguarded the summer after my 10th grade year. And um, so I'd saved up, I don't know, 3000 or so, some dollars. And uh, I was going to buy a car, right? And so I'm getting ready to buy a car. And there were two cars I was looking at, okay? Car A was a 1980 Toyota Land Cruiser. Two thumbs up, super cool, right? Okay, 1200 bucks. It was sky blue. It was totally awesome. I looked at it, and I was like, wow, that is really cool. That'd be so fun. I'd be the stuff if I was driving that thing around, you know. Anyway, and so I loved it. The next car I looked at was a 1986 Mitsubishi Galant right there. Okay, see, you, right now you think this, the choice is clear, right? But... When I was 15 or whatever I was, I thought I was, I was still desperately pragmatic about so many things and a total chance. And I thought, you know what? It would be wiser for me to buy the Mitsubishi Galant. That would be the wise, smart thing to do. And so guess which car I bought? The Mitsubishi Galant, right? You know what? I looked up uh, Toyota Land Cruisers like online the other day, and they were amazing, like 50,000 bucks, right? And so my money would have been mag- you know, massively increased. Anyway, so I bought the Mitsubishi Galant. And uh, what's interesting is, um, over the course of the three years I owned that thing, it was the worst vehicle probably ever produced in the history of humanity. I had to replace the transmission twice, okay, two times, and the second time I just replaced it so I could finally sell it and be rid of it, right? And uh, not only that, but there was something wrong with the electrical system, so every time I wanted to drive it and start it, I would have to jump start it from another car, Okay. This is true. It's not unlike the Camry I drive now. Anyway, so I'm a freshman at Covenant College, and anytime I want to go anywhere, people are like, hey, BP, can you drive us down the mountain? I'm like, maybe. Maybe I can, right? 
if someone else will pull up next to us and we can attach our jumper cables, I can do it. And then maybe if I find somebody in the parking lot of the movie theater, wherever we just went, then maybe I can get us back up the mountain because I have to jumpstart it again, right? So this is the illustration. It's a good one, I promise. Anyway, the point is, is that there was something wrong with the electrical system and it needed power from outside itself in order to run. So some of us in this room this morning, we're facing situations that require, frankly, more power than we've got, right? And so it could be any number of different things. Some of you are afraid, like the Israelites were afraid for their physical safety. Some of you are doubtful. Some of you are timid, right? Some of, some of you, it's a parenting situation with a child. For some of you, it's a spouse. For some of you, it's a job. For any number of us, it's any number of different things we're fearful about. They seem too big for us. And part of what God is doing to the Israelites when he calls them to rebuild his temple, and they say it's too big for us, is he goes, you're right. It is too big for you, but it's not too big for me. I'll give you my power, right? And so again, God gives us a little glimpse of his purpose. He gives us a little glimpse of his power. And little by little, the emptiness and the melancholy begin to melt away, right? The last thing we see in this passage of Haggai is that not only does God offer them a reminder of his purpose and of his power, but he reminds them of his presence, okay? We'll read these verses. It says this, and again, he's, he's imploring them essentially to worship him, to build the temple because it's good for them. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, right? 18 years after you've ignored me and done your own thing and pursued your own stuff, I'm still here. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. I haven't gone anywhere. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I haven't given up on you. I am still right here, right? Haven't left, still here. 18 years later, 70 years later, I'm still here. I'm still with you. And remember, the people are afraid because they got sent back to build the temple. But the people that lived around the temple that had been left behind threatened them physically and said, hey, if you don't quit that, we're going to kill you. We're going to destroy you. And so they're, they're afraid, right? It's logical that they would sort of turtle up. And so they begin working on the temple only to have those people threaten them. And here's God asking them to begin again, right? And what does he do but says, don't worry, I'm with you. He, he helps overcome their fear. He helps overcome their dissatisfaction, their melancholy by saying, I'm with you. I'm right here. I know you're afraid. I know it feels like it's too much, but I'm right here. So, I don't know, Levi's 10. Levi, owe you a dollar, buddy. I'm going to use you in a story. Uh, when Levi was about 18 months old, we actually went up to Lookout Mountain with our friends to a place called uh, Gerber Branch where there's a neat little swimming pool. We were hanging out with a bunch of our buddies there. At the time, Levi was probably 18 months, which meant that Sam was probably six or seven, and May would have been like three. And so May and Sam would have been able to swim, but Levi probably was too little to swim at that time. And so there were probably, you know, six or seven different families there with all the kids going crazy in the pool. And Levi, 18 months old, though he couldn't swim, wanted to desperately go in the pool, and he wanted to go off the, the diving board. And so, of course, the only way for him to jump off the diving board is for me to jump in the deep end and to tread water. You've seen, you had a parent do this one day, right? To tread water and, uh, and to coax that child into jumping off of the diving board that couldn't swim. And so sure enough, you know, Levi wants to go off the diving board. So I'm like, all right, buddy, you get on the diving board. 
and I'll jump in the deep end. And so I'm you know, in the deep end, treading water. But of course, Levi's scared to jump in the water. And uh, so what am I doing? I'm saying, I'm here, right? I'm right here with you, buddy. I'll catch you. I'm here. Don't worry. I'm not going anywhere. I'll save you. I'll grab you as soon as you hit the water, and I'll carry you over to the side. And so finally, because I'm in the deep end waiting for him, Levi, 18-month-old Levi, plops off the diving board. And sure enough, I grab him, carrying him, carry him over to the ladder. And what does he do? Immediately, he runs back to the ladder. I mean, he runs back to the diving board, and he does it again, and he does it again, and does it again, and does it again. And he probably did it like 25 times. It was the most exercise I've gotten in the last 10 years, probably. I was exhausted. <laughs> but the point is, is what allowed him to overcome his fear was my presence, the presence of his father, me saying, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. I'm right here with you, buddy. I'm right here. How many of you this morning need to hear that God is with you today? Right? How many of you in this room this morning need to hear that God is with you today, right? that he hasn't given up on you? Right? He probably could have, right? If, if he did, maybe you'd kind of go, yeah, well, I turned my back on him for a long time, and so maybe he'd be justified in doing so, but what God is telling us here is he's saying, I haven't given up on you. If he didn't give up on the Israelites after 18 years of them ignoring him, he's not going to give up on us either. He's going to tell us this morning the same thing that he told the Israelites 2,600 years ago, which is, I'm still right here with you, All right? I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Now, today you'll see around the room there are tables. Um, on my right-hand side of the room, there are tables with bread and wine. And on the left-hand side of the room, there are tables with bread and grape juice, right? And uh, this meal is something that Jesus instituted. And uh, the reason he instituted it was to communicate some of these very things that we were just talking about. It's really a symbol, obviously. It's a sign that really paints a picture of the gospel. And so in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of Jesus' power, right? Because what his Death on the cross reminds us of his power to overcome not only sin and to declare us righteous and to remove our guilt, but also his power to overcome death. And so we're reminded of his power. It's pictured in this meal. And the Lord's Supper also reminds us of Jesus' presence, right? Because Jesus said, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a reminder that your sin could never make Jesus leave you or forsake you. In fact, your sin is the very reason that he came to begin with, right? He's still with you. And finally, the Lord's Supper is a reminder of Jesus' purpose. Jesus said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the very reason that I came was to die for you in order to rescue you, in order to bring you back into a relationship with my Father. So this meal is a reminder of all those things, God's presence, God's purpose, God's power for you this morning. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the words of institution in a moment. But before I read the words of institution, I, I want you just to think about that for a moment. Um, I want you to wrestle with the fact that part of what this meal declares to you today is you can't out him, right? You, you can't turn your back on him so long that he will give up on you. This meal communicates that God was willing to do everything, anything that was required to bring you back into a relationship with him. And so this meal is an offer of grace. And I will say this, it is an offer of grace only for those people who trust in Christ alone as their savior, right? It's not for people who are still thinking, I'm good enough 
and God will accept me because I'm good enough, right? It's not for people who say, well, I haven't been too bad, therefore God accepts me. That's not at all what this meal communicates. What this meal communicates is that it is only by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of God's only son that you're brought back into a relationship with God. And his death, the death of Jesus, is more than enough to cover over all of your sins, all of your rebellion, all of your rejection, and not only all of yours alone, but over all of those things for all the history of humanity. It is more than enough. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, use this bread and this wine to remind us that you love us. I pray that you would use this bread and wine to remind us that you aren't going anywhere. And in fact, you came in order to rescue broken and empty and melancholy people just like us. Father, it's, it was your purpose. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would use this meal um, to really and viscerally um, infuse us with energy that you would feed us and nourish us spiritually, that you would send us out with energy when we know and as we know that you loved us enough to send your only son, Jesus Christ, for us. So it's in his name that we pray. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. We thank you for um, the reminder and the truth that for those of us who have um, decided to cling only to your son Jesus, that our lives are indeed uh, hidden within Christ, that we are hidden in you, in him. Father, we pray all these things, um, proclaiming that Jesus is our only hope. Amen. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and may he give you his peace.